Wow, it asked the, it asked the question there, are you ready to suffer? Does anybody feel like they're moving into suffering because summer's almost over? Man, how did we, I mean, we just started with the whole toes in the sand thing and here we are, it's, it's almost done and I'm fine with that to be honest with you, but hey, I don't know about y'all, I, I've, had a, I've had an awesome summer and uh, I, I, I don't think I've ever said this before, I, I have, uh, I've loved the sermon series this summer, not necessarily the preacher so much, but I, I, I tell you what, I, I have loved going through First and Second Peter. And I have such a greater appreciation of, of God and, and how he used his great servant Peter and what he gave through Peter to you and me, to that church, those churches that were suffering so much. Not, not suffering because this is a hard world to live in, suffering because they were followers of Christ. Their following of Christ had kind of left them on the outside culturally, politically, economically and and man they're they're paying the price for that and and Peter comes along to say man hang on hold on to Christ stay faithful all the way to that day that you see him and his glory shown to all the world and your anticipation my anticipation of that day is what keeps us and these are words from first Peter that's what keeps us sharp that's what keeps us excellent that's what keeps us holy. Oh, what a, what a challenge we've been given by First and Second Peter. And what I want to do these next two Sundays, today, next week, is now that we've got these principles, I want to see somebody really live them. I want to say, okay, what does that look like? What, what, how does that live out in the world? And, and we have some great stories that we're going to look at to do that. Next week, we're going to be looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three guys thrown into the fiery furnace. Y'all familiar with that story? We're going to have a, we're going to have a lot of fun with that. As a matter of fact, our, our, uh, our choir special that day, I, I, out at Midlothian, the band that day, we have a song that is going to lead into the message. It's going to really, we're just going to have an awesome day next week. You just be here, okay? Now, now today though, well, you're just stuck because you're already here. But, but today we're going to look at David and Goliath. Now, when I just said, we're looking at some lives to see how what Peter wrote is lived out. You know, David did live a thousand years before Peter. How is, how is David displaying things that, that aren't going to be written for a thousand years? Well, it's, that's very simple. Because it's not Peter's principles and truth, it's God's. And God's principles, God's truth are true in 1000 BC, 66 AD, 2018 AD. Whoever you are, wherever you're living, whatever you're dealing with, God's truth works. And that's what we're going to see today in David. Now, before we launch into the story, I just kind of want to run in front of us real quickly some of the verses, some of the ideas that we've seen. And obviously, we've seen a lot more than what we're going to see on the screen right now. But obviously, today's verses are going to be, they're going to show up in what we see in David's life. So look up here on the screen, First Peter 1.13. This has been a key idea all the way through the letters, repeated four or five, six times. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. That's what we are in the midst of suffering. 
We're, we're active. We're moving. Prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded. We got the word sharp, focused. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Peter quotes God saying out of Leviticus, you shall be holy. Man, folks, the goal is not to be good enough. Our call, the call on your life is to be holy. What kind of holy? Better, better than the pastor's holiness? Better than the deacon? No, you're to be holy just like God is holy. First Peter 2, 9. You know, I looking back, I think if there's any verse, any passage I really did a disservice to in how quickly we ran through it, it would probably be this one. This is one we could have camped out on. You're going to see how profound it is to David to live in light of his identity. But you are a chosen race. That's what you are. You're sitting in here today as a follower, a believer of Jesus Christ. You've been born again. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. And what do you do in this identity? You proclaim the excellencies of our God. Again, we're going we're to see that really profoundly in David. And then maybe our central passage for today, we're going to see David live out in your hearts Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We are ready, we are holy, we are God's people. No matter the attack, no matter the the mocking, we're going to honor, we're going to set apart as holy, we're going to make the great, great thing in our life, the Lord God. Now, what's that look like? Well, we're going to see in the life of David. Turn with me today in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel. We haven't been there recently in a while. That's in about the first, oh, what is that, 20% of your Bible? Does that look like about 20? That's very helpful, isn't it? The 20% mark in your Bible. <laughs> yeah, if you're kind of thumbing through the beginning there, you're going to go through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then boom, 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings are on the other side. So if you're kind of thumbing through the beginning of your Bible there, that's where you'll find it. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and let's begin in verse 20. 1 Samuel 17 verse 20. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and he set out early the next morning with gifts as Jesse had directed him. Jesse is his dad. The gifts he's carrying are, for lack of a better word, he's got crackers and cheese, okay? And he is carrying that to his brothers. He has several brothers that are on the front line in, in a war, in, in a battle. And so Jesse says, hey, David, he calls him in from the field. David's the baby of the family. Carry this stuff to your brothers. He gives something for the captain. Give this to the captain. Because you always want to take care of the people that are over your kids, right? And, and, and so off David, off David goes. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield. With shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite, the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies. That's quartermaster, isn't it? Hua. All right. And hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt, 
to the army of Israel. Now, there is a backstory to what's going on here. There's a backstory to those two words, the usual taunt. And you get that backstory in verses 1 to 19. So maybe this afternoon, not right this second, but maybe this afternoon, go back and read verses 1 to 19. Verse 24, as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. Again, you'll understand that if you read verses 1 to 19. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife. <laughs> Lucky for her, huh? He, he will give that man one of his daughters for a wife. And Okay, now this one really relates, doesn't it? And the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Okay, <laughs> where do we sign up for this? Okay, now you got to beat the giant, just to mind her there. Verse 26, David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this, Pagestine Philist- who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? These men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that's the reward for killing him. Now, let me stop right here because you're going to actually see in another verse or two, David asked the question again. Now, what does somebody get for beating the Philistine? Now, what does somebody get? They get the king's daughter and they get out of... Okay, so y'all, this isn't hard, is it? This is not a complex prize, And yet David is asking over and over. And then we're going to see David's brother get mad. So what what is going on here? Why is David asking over and over? David's not asking for information. He's not asking because he didn't understand the answer. Let let me kind of re-say it and what's going on here. What does somebody get? Guys, is is that really the big question right now? The prize Is that what we're discussing? What does somebody get? That's what's on our heart. Why doesn't somebody do something about this pagan? You understand now what David's saying? He he can't believe that the big question on everybody's mind is what the prize is all about. And David's saying, prize? Seriously? We need a prize to stand up and do something here? And and notice, notice over, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to be pretty much at high octane for the rest of this sermon, okay? Because that's what David and Goliath gets us, okay? So, so David, you notice how he keeps saying, and he will say this all through the story, the armies of the living God, the Lord God Almighty, the people of Israel. He is so tied into his identity. Not just his identity by himself. It's who I am in God connected with who we are in God. And that identity means we stand up. That identity is something that we defend. And that's what Peter, remember, just like these Israelite soldiers, Peter is writing a group of churches. They're scared to death. There's giants in the land, the giant of cultural thought, the giant of being on the outside. And and, and he's challenging them, man, hey, do you know who you are? You're a royal priesthood. You're God's chosen people. Man, man, you're a holy nation. And folks, that's actually supposed to move us. That, that's actually supposed to do something inside us. We're proud of that. Dare I say, my identity in God ought to be the biggest thing in my life. More than my nationality, more than my race, more than my favorite team. And there's nothing more I'm ready to talk about. Nothing more that I'm ready to stand up and defend. 
And we're going to see David do this over and over and over. Now, when I say defend, I'm not talking about going out and picking a fight with people. I'm not, I'm not talking about becoming arrogant and, and a bully about the church. Hey, you know what? We've made some mistakes as a church, haven't we? I mean, Little C, Church, the Heights Baptist, we, we haven't always done what we should do. There's some things we did we should not have done. There's probably some people that have been hurt. Maybe by the leadership, maybe by just an, an individual. And, and they're out there now. They're no longer here. They're no, maybe no longer a part of it. And, and, and they're hurt. And they can give testimony. Man, I was hurt by the church. And then there's the capital C church. Man, think of, I mean, hey, the church has done some things wrong in the world, right? And we talk about the crusades and burning witches at the stake and racism, all that's going on right now. Oh, look at, gosh, this week, this week, just north of us coming out of Pennsylvania, that, that, I mean, that's not just a mistake, is it? That's horrific news. Oh, over 300 priests, over 70 years involved in the, in the sexual abuse of, they know, over a thousand children. That's embarrassing, isn't it? That, that's the thing that, oh my gosh, we really are a mess. We really are a problem in this world. And that's kind of an, a narrative in America right now is that the church really is the source of every problem. If we could get rid of religion, if we could get rid of the church, because every problem comes out of that, that's not true. You know, I can say that even in light of the news this week, not 400 years ago, I can say that in light of the news this week, horrible news, horrific news, that things that should have never happened that are devastating. Folks, I can tell you something. The church isn't the problem in the world today. I can say just the opposite. The church for the last 2,000 years has been the greatest force for good on the planet. And there's not a second place. That's actually historical truth. And that's so important that you and I know that because there very much is a narrative running in America right now that the church is the problem. And it's just not true. When what I see is I see a lot of Christians. I see a lot, and I want to assume the best. I think we're, I think we're trying to identify. We're trying to respect what others have been through. We're, we're trying to say we understand. And so I, I'm seeing a whole lot of believers that, that are crossing over to the other team, putting their hand, arm around the lost and saying, man, look at the church. They really are a bunch of losers. Let me tell you something. Don't bash the church. Don't bash the bride of Christ. Don't ever believe that dishonoring is going to lead to honoring. It never does. Not in any kind of situation, not in any kind of circumstance, will dishonoring ultimately be a way we get to honoring Christ, the church, or, or, or anything else. We're not perfect, and we need to be humble. We need to be respectful of the reality that there are people in the world today, maybe in our community, that have been hurt by a church. But for, folks, the church is the greatest force for good on this planet. And you and I need to be proud of it. And we need to be ready to talk about it. We need to be ready. A little summer read before summer's over. Dinesh D'Souza. Good luck spelling that. Dinesh D'Souza wrote a book called What's So Great About Christianity? 
And it's not a theological discussion. It's a historical discussion of the presence of the church on planet earth for the last 2,000 years. And you'll get facts, not opinions, not here's why we're better than every. No, you'll get facts of what we've really done. And even some of the things that have, oh, here's the great wrong we've done, how really actually very small that is. So I highly encourage that. Man, we're, God's put us on a team. And we're to be proud of that team. We're to, we're to live for that team. Oh my gosh, we haven't even got to the giant yet. All right, where did I leave off? What verse am I on? Verse 28. But when David's oldest brother Eliab, now remember what I say, David's running around showing everybody up, saying, are you guys really, this is the big question on your mind? When David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What what are you doing here anyhow? See, Eliab should be doing something about this, but he's not. So you got a little brother kind of showing up a big brother. This is so real right here. Okay, what are you doing here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? He's making fun of them. I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now? Doesn't it sound like a little brother? I I was just just asking a question. And he walked over to some others. He didn't let up. He didn't let, he walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king set for him. Let me, let me stop right here. Now, I just want you to notice, because I know a lot of us in here, maybe not everybody, but a lot of us in here, we know where the story's going, right? You ever, you ever cried? You ever whined about how all alone you are? Nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody supports me. Do you recognize that as David is moving toward this Big moment. He's got no support at all. Nobody's supporting him. Nobody's encouraging him. I mean, his peers. We're not actually talking about the enemy right now. This, the, the people who should be coming alongside him are making fun of him. Now, you want to see it get worse? Let's keep reading. So, uh, I got to quit losing my spot. What verse? Yeah, that's, that's what I said. Right, right, right down there, verse 32. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll fight him. Don't be ridiculous. Now, that, that, there's nothing wrong with the word ridiculous, but when you're telling somebody to not be ridiculous, that's synonymous with saying, don't be stupid. You're stupid. Everything coming out of your mouth right now is stupid. Don't, don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way... Okay, so his... The people who should be supporting him, his peers are not supporting him. Now the people over him, no support, no encouragement there. No, I I think you're actually ridiculous. There's no way, listen to that, there's no way, there's no scenario where what you're talking about works. That's what David's hearing right now. There's no scenario you can beat the Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's a man of war since his youth. You know, I've, I've always thought that verse was interesting, almost comical, because you realize in what he's telling David he's not, he's describing what he is. He's describing what he is. He's describing what his generals and his captains out there on the front line are. And none of them are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Hey, hey, David, you've got no experience. You've got no equipment. You're, you're too small. You're not big like me. 
You don't have the equipment like me. You don't have the experience in war. Like I, I mean, with every word out of Saul's mouth, he convicts himself. Gosh, it'd be fun just to take a few seconds here and just kind of make fun of Saul. But I'll tell you what, that really convicts me. It convicts me. It makes me wonder, hey, what am, what, what kind of example am I leaving? What am I doing that... that what am I doing that the next pastor is going to have to fix? That's not an announcement. I want to be clear, <laughs> okay? But, but seriously, what am I doing? What am I not faithful at that somewhere down the road another pastor is going to have to come in and pick up and, and go where I didn't? What am I doing as, as somebody in their 50s? What am I doing for the younger church leaders in this church? What am I doing for my kids? You know, what, am, what kind of example am I leaving? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Or am I just making a more difficult path for them to follow down the road? Now that's not just a question for a pastor, is it? Or a father? Who, who in here shouldn't be asking that question? I mean, maybe we don't think of that question so much as an 18-year-old or a 28-year-old. But I'll tell you something, if you're over the age of 45, that's about the time to start thinking, what comes behind me? And am I setting out a path of what it looks like and what it means to live greatly for God in today's worlds, with today's issues, with today's challenges? Am I showing what's coming behind me, what it means to live greatly for God? Or am I living in such a way that what's coming behind me is going to have to live greatly for God to overcome the path I set? This, that's just too hard. Let's move on. Verse 34, I knew right where I was. David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I <laughs> club it to death. Just a little warning here. We're kind of moving into a rated R portion of the story, and which honestly in the Bible, a lot of David's life gives us a rated R portion. I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it again. Will you hear any hesitancy? Nobody's supporting them. Nobody's encouraging them. But, man, I'll do it again to this pagan Philistine, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Back to the identity. You see, our, our identity is actually supposed to shape what we do next. Our identity is to shape how we think about what's going on around us and how we respond. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead. Lord be with you. You know, in the South, we have another way of saying that. Bless your heart. It's a very spiritual way of saying you're, you're toast. You're done. That is the most insincere, may the Lord be with you, uttered on planet earth and all, and all of it. You know what he's saying right there, right? You're, you're toast. Good, good luck with that. Okay? Now, here's David. And again, we're getting part of the story now. We get to know the exciting stuff's about to happen. How is it that David is able to take on a giant? How is it? What did, what did Paul say? There's no scenario where you can do this. You cannot win. This is impossible. How is David prepared to do the impossible? You ready for this? It's something as simple as gratitude. David's thankful. 
Thankfulness is what has prepared him for this day. No, you did not hear the word thank you. You you didn't see the beginning of a prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for today and all your blessings. No, there's nothing like that. But what is front and center in David's mind as he's talking to Saul? What God's done for him. Here's how God has provided. Here's how God has protected. Here are the victories that God has given. Notice that's all front and center in David's mind. Because gratitude is an everyday, all day discipline in his life. So when it pops up, when the challenge, when the crisis, when the impossibility pops up, front and center of David's mind is everything God is, everything God has been for him, everything that God has done through him. He's not thinking about what can happen. He's thinking about what God is going to do. You know, I wonder, would we scratch our head if I said, hey, how's God, how did God protect you this week? What, what victory did God give you this week? Would we go, well... Oh, that was pretty. I, I, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. God worked in your life this week. God protected you. God gave you a victory. Especially you didn't see my life. God gave you a victory this week. The question is not what is God doing. The question is are we marking it? Are we acknowledging it? Are we remembering it? Because folks, gratitude and going over this list over and over and over, being constantly mindful of all that God is doing, that is the stuff that our faith feeds on. And if it's not in my life, guess what? You're going to have no faith for today's crisis. You're going to have no faith. I don't have any faith. You got no gratitude and you just confess to it. I just don't have the faith. You've got no gratitude. You're not marking. You're not remembering what God is doing in your life. If you've got any prayer this week, God, open my eyes so I finally see what you're doing all around me every single day. Boy, David shows us exactly what it takes to take on the crisis. Verse 38, then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it and took a step or two to see what it was like. For he had never worn such things before. I, 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 I can't go in these. Man, I respect David so much here. I'm on, I mean, come on, man. A brand new shiny gun. The very best military warfare. I, listen, I don't know what all King Saul has, but he's the king. So he's going to have the best, Right? Whatever the military has to offer, King Saul has the cutting edge of what there is, and he gives it to him. I, I can't use this. I mean, I, listen, I have bright, shiny stuff. Woo! But he's smart. Hey, I'm getting ready to go do something. I need to go with what I know. What I know is God. I, this stuff doesn't fit. I don't know how to use it. It's, it's not, it's not going to work for me. So I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and he put them into a shepherd's bag. Then armed only with a shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to the Philistine. Now from the world's perspective, you watch him. He's got no support, not from his friends, not from his family. He's got no support from the people above him. He's got no resources. He's going into a war zone. He's going into a battle with sticks and rocks. As a matter of fact, if you're, well, yeah, but that's how they fought back then. No, look at, look at, how, look at how Goliath responds. Verse 41. Goliath walked out toward David with his, with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. I love that phrase because it means red-headed little freckled guy. David looks like me. So 
I've always been very comfortable making myself the hero of this story. Look at verse 43. Am I a dog? Now you're wondering. See, a lot of us, we're reading what we already know back into the story. And what we already know is that David is going to become a giant in military warfare. I mean, this isn't stuff you say in church. David is going to rack up the kills. He is a soldier. He is a warrior. That's not what he is yet. See, we're taking what we already know about David and reading it back into this. He is an older teenager who's never spent a day on the front line, never spent a moment. Goliath sees him and says, you're kidding me. He's actually offended because we're sending out, be like LeBron James up there saying, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll play one-on-one game. You, you, You win and you get my salary next year. I win and I get your church. And so what do we send out to pray LeBron James, a five-year-old who just signed up for rec league? That, that, that's kind of what Goliath is seeing here. You, you send me this. So you're saying, man, I wonder what David looks like. I'm guessing pretty unimpressive. I'm guessing, I mean, he's so unimpressive in his stature and what he looks like. Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. Now, folks, verse 45 to 47, if you've got your own Bible, you need to underline it, you need to circle it, some of the most exciting, some of the most profound verses in all the Bible, and they are the illustration of how you live, First Peter 3.15. This is a person, the words you're about to hear are coming out of the mouth of somebody who has set God as holy in his heart. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head. And then I will give, I'm not done. Then I will give the dead bodies of you. Oh, my gosh. Now, he's already been told, you got no business fighting Goliath. There's no scenario whereby you beat him. And now David has said, and when I'm done with you, hey, rest of the army up there on the hillside, bird food. That's what you all are today is bird food. Now, he's not anticipating he's going to go up there and beat him all by himself. He's anticipating with what I get ready to do with Goliath, I'm finally going to inspire these yahoos behind me hiding in the caves. And their army is going down. And I see Saul standing behind him going, "I, I don't know who he is. I, I don't, who, who let him in here? I mean, Saul is going, what? Okay, now, let me finish up here. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know there's a God in Israel. What did we just read? You're a, you're a royal priesthood. You're a chosen nation. You're God's own possession to declare the excellencies of the God who rescued us out of darkness to light. What is David saying? God rescued me from the bear. God rescued me from the lion. And God's rescuing me from you, Goliath. And when I get done, the whole world is going to know there's a God in Israel. Do you see David? 
Do you see David living the principles Peter is challenging you and me to live by? Does anybody really do that? Here it is right here. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. Not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle. And he will give you to us. And David reaches into his pocket and he pulls out one of those five stones. He puts it in the sling. He hurls it at Goliath. The stone doesn't kill him. It hits him in the head. I don't know. He knocks him out, stuns him for a moment. He drops to his knees. And, and in that moment of being stunned, David runs over, picks up his sword, and cuts off his head. And that's what it looks like when you've set apart the Lord God is holy. That's what it looks like when there's nothing bigger in your life than God. He is living, 1 Peter 3, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Always being prepared. What an illustration of being prepared. You, know, you want to know something? David did not wake up this morning and say, oh Lord, this is a big one. Lord, Lord, this is a big, this is a big meeting. This is an important moment. It's, it's me against the world. Lord, would you, would you give me wisdom? Lord, would you give me strength? Oh, Lord, I pray. David didn't pray anything that morning about facing a giant. Dave, David didn't do anything that morning. He, he, he's delivering crackers and cheese. But he was ready, wasn't he? He readied himself by a life of gratitude. He readied himself by there being nothing bigger in his heart than God. What's that mean there's nothing bigger? Folks, our inactivity is just evidence of the things in our lives that are bigger than God. My reputation's bigger to me than God. I I got a reputation at school. I got a reputation here at work. I I don't know what people are going to think. They're going to make fun of me. My money's bigger to me than God. We've got to keep this God thing in perspective. My money is bigger to me than that. This relationship, my desire for that, that's bigger than me. I'm going to, the, 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 this relationship and my desire for it, that's what's going to shape and direct my heart. That's what's going to tell me is right and wrong. I mean, God's in there. I love God. God's cool. But he's not bigger than, you know what is bigger in our heart for, uh, I'm not going to say a lot of us, for some of us. You know what's bigger in our heart than God? You know what we have set apart as Lord in our heart? Our fear our failure, and our hurts. Nothing shapes your life more. Nothing directs your... I'm stupid. I'm ugly. I can't do that. This happened to me 27 years ago. I'm worthless. And those memories and those thoughts... That's the big thing in your life. That's what shapes you more than anything else. Folks, what we see in David is none of that. There's nothing. I'm not saying David has no fears. I'm not saying David's never been hurt, never been rejected. It's just not as big as God is to him. You know, when David heads into that valley, it's not because he's braver than you. I'm just not that brave. David didn't head into the valley because he was brave. He didn't head into the valley because he was strong. He didn't head into the valley because he had all the resources. He didn't head into the valley because he had all the support. David headed into the valley because he loved the Lord God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. And nothing was bigger to him than God. And you know what? Many of us have been there. We hadn't been there for God But we've been there for somebody we did love with all of our heart and our soul and our strength. Maybe it was a mate. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it's one of our children. Holy cow, somebody takes off on one of my kids. 
Somebody does an injustice to one of my kids. Imagine that. You think when somebody attacks one of my children, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know if I'm brave enough to take this on. I don't know if I'm smart enough to go handle this. You you know, it may be in all of my stupidity that I move. You go after one of my kids, and okay, now we bring the war. All right? See, I'm not measuring how brave I am. I'm measuring how much love I have for my child. And that's what David is showing us with God. We don't move because we don't have that kind of love. Now, what, what's it mean to be prepared? What's it mean to stand up there and defend? I just feel like I ought to say this because we live in kind of a crazy world today. The scripture's not challenging you and I to cut people's heads off. Hmm? Right? You see, there's a context here. There's a con- what does it mean to defend the Lord? What does it mean to defend, to stand up for the church? What does it mean to be ready to give a defense? It's going to look somewhat different from one situation to the next. Keep in mind where David is. He is in the middle of a battle. He is in a war zone. There are soldiers. There are armies. There are weapons. They are fighting. That is the context by which David did what he did. It's interesting. First Peter 3.15, if we go on and read the rest of it, because I didn't put the whole verse up there, but if you go on and read the rest of it, it says, with gentleness and respect. It's with gentleness and respect that we move into the battle. It's with gentleness. God's not calling you and I to be bullies. He's not calling you and I to go out there and pick fights. He's calling us to be gentle because the Spirit's in control of our lives. He's calling us to be respectful, respecting where people are, what they've dealt with, how they've been hurt, what their weaknesses are. Whether I respect it or not, I'm to be respectful of that person and ask for God's wisdom and what it means to stand up right here. But what does it mean when we stand up? It means there's nothing bigger in our heart than God. And folks, the problem is we're all across America. The church is not standing up. There is a Philistine army growing in America. And just like you'll read in verses 119, we're hi- 1 to 19, we're hiding in the caves. We're afraid. There's a giant down there. Man, there's the giant of science. There's the giant of cultural thought. There, there's the giant of me being so far out in my, my... I mean, who even believes the Bible anymore? And we're hiding. Our fears are bigger to us than God. We just don't, do not love Him. How, how do, how do, Lord, how do I love you like David did? I'm fearful we won't do what it takes to love the Lord like David did. No, it's not a hard thing. It's not a... You know what it is? It's time. It's time. And not a little bit of it. A lot lot of it. And for most of us, God is just not worthy of the time. I didn't say He's not worth nothing, right? I mean, you're here this morning. I'm here this morning. He's, He's worth an hour. It takes a lot of time to be prepared to face giants. It takes a lot of time, a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time in the Bible, a lot of time in worship, a lot of time with God's people, a lot of time in God's work. And folks, I'm not saying it takes a lot of time because you and I got to do more and more and more to try to be good enough. Jesus has already been good enough for us. We're giving God so little time that we're giving him so little opportunity to show us he can beat the bear, he can beat the lion, and he can beat Goliath. 
We're giving him no time to show us that. So when the bear and when the lion and when Goliath show up, we can't remember. We haven't seen. I don't know what God can be here because I have boiled God down to something I do five minutes a day. And that's what the church has given us for the last 50 years. Oh, if you just, if you just five, well, if you just spend five minutes a day. Oh, if you just, if you just spend five minutes three or four times a week. We're just trying to boil God down into a little fun sized Snickers bar. We just keep him nearby. And when I need a little pick me up, when I need a little boost, oh, I've got a little challenge. Oh, I want God for the challenge. I just haven't seen God do anything because I don't look for God anywhere. I don't trust God for anything. I don't step out in any way he's shown me. So I have zero knowledge that God can beat the bear and the lion and the Goliath. It takes time. It doesn't take time to be religious. It doesn't take time to have a little God. But I think if David would say anything to us, it would say, no, it, it takes some time. It takes some time with God's word. But look at the result. Look at what he does. He steps up to the giant because he's just that much in love with God. And he has no doubt. Well, of what Peter taught us in 1 Peter 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. Not for one second when David crossed that valley was he alone. He knew the Lord God was with him. And he knew at the end of this day, through his life, Israel would know, the Philistines would know, the world would know, there is a Lord God here. You know what's interesting about this story? We, we use the word miracle a lot for things that are not miracles. Any neat thing, any special thing, any surprise, oh, that's a miracle. In many cases, it wasn't. And that's not, I'm not saying that because I don't believe in miracles. I totally believe in miracles. This, what David did here with Goliath, is not a miracle. Walking on water is a miracle, right? Raising the dead, that's a miracle. Beating Goliath is not a miracle. That's just the power of God flowing through somebody who loves him that much. That's just the power of God flowing through somebody who has set apart Christ as Lord in his heart. That's what it looks like, and that's what can be the result And if it's not happening in our lives, the failure is not with this book. And the failure is not with the power of God. Gosh, we we see David go into that valley and we see everything he he doesn't have. And David would look at you and me and say, you have absolutely everything except the most important thing. A passionate, zealous love for God that is the biggest thing in your heart and life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, uh, I, I, I say this like it's true of every one of us. And I, I, I don't know that, Lord. As a matter of fact, I, I have some confidence that there are many of us throughout this room, over at Midlothian, watching online, who do have, who do have a passionate, zealous love for God. Lord, we're all over the spectrum. And from no love for you at all to the love that David had. Lord, I would, I would pray for each one of us right now, the wisdom and the insight to look into our own lives and kind of measure what's happening there. 
Do, do we have a paralysis? Do we have a fear? Are we hiding in the caves and just pulling out a little God whenever we need you? Or God, do we have a love and a passion that is shaping and directing everything every day? Whether we know we've got a big thing in front of us or have no idea what Monday, August 20th holds. God, I I pray for each of us wisdom in how we take a step forward in what it means to love you and to set you apart as Lord in our heart and and in our life. Because, God, I want to see. I want to see that you can beat the bear and the lion and Goliath. God, I want the whole world to see it. I want the whole world to know there is a real Lord and a real God. Oh God, could they see it through my life, through my home, through our church? It's in Jesus' name we ask for your help what the next step is for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.